Welcome to CF Digital, the show that asks the tough questions about child custody, co-parenting, and child attachment. Parent and family court practitioners from around the world and across many disciplines will find these programs valuable. Dr. Mark Roseman, founder of CF Digital and publisher of Contemporary Family Magazine states, as with our magazine Contemporary Family, CF Digital focuses on the global issues of child custody, child development, and family policy. Our global guests and panelists are the pioneers, practitioners, and researchers who will share their many unique perspectives on the issues of interventions, treatment, and law. Whether you are a therapist, attorney, legislator, or parent, you will find a fountain of information to help with your chosen discipline here at CF Digital. Please share and write us your thoughts on the program. Tonight on CF Digital, we're with Mark Ludwig, who is the creator of Americans for Equal Shared Parenting, which is a national organization that has kind of swept the country along with the movement of shared parenting. Mark, let's start with, why did you start this organization? Uh, yeah, I uh, had actually first been a part of the community for about a year before, because what I didn't want to do is start another organization, because the the shared parenting community, unfortunately, is already saturated with well over a thousand organizations. And uh, unfortunately, we spend a lot of time rearranging the chairs on the same deck instead of trying to get more chairs out in a, in a bigger deck. And uh, so I, I didn't want to take away from an, another organization, but uh, my background was in politics. I've, I've been in politics for 35 years now. And I saw a distinct uh, void in the shared parenting community as far as educating people on the process of how to get legislation passed. And so what I, the reason I set up AFESP was to work in conjunction with other groups. Uh, so we collaborate rather than be in competition with other groups, we're gonna partner with groups. And we've done a good job of that. We've actually partnered with over 60 organizations over the last uh, six years now working on legislation, but our our main goal is to educate and empower other people so they can be the change in their state. Uh, most, most state legislatures don't want some national organization coming in their state and telling them what to do. So I, I try not to do that. What I try to do is do, be more of a mentor or an advisor to people in their own states and coach them through the process. Now you've actually personally have gone to nearly all the states in the United States and spoken to legislators and people pertaining to shared parenting? It, it seems like I've been to all of them. Now, I've actually, I believe, 29 states I've actually been to. Uh, I know I've personally met with uh, close to 600 legislators now from around the country uh, regarding the, the shared parenting topic. So let me ask you this, because shared parenting is becoming more and more of a public issue uh, in the forefront. What is shared parenting and why is it so vital to get passed in, in all these states? Um, yeah, and, and actually it's equal shared parenting we're fighting for, but rather than, you always want to try and, and use the fewest words possible uh, without having to put a disclaimer and then a disclaimer on the disclaimer and a disclaimer on the disclaimer. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, technically what we're after is equal shared parenting, that a, a child should be presumed to have equal access to both parents after divorce or separation. They should be presumed to have the same access after divorce or separation that they had prior to it. And for a very good reason, I, you know, opposites attract. And I think that was made for a purpose. Uh, you know, normally 
you are, you are attracted to somebody who has different strengths that compensate for your weaknesses and vice versa. And in raising a child in an ideal environment, that child gets a much better enrichment and, and a much better environment to thrive in if they have two inputs that are collaborating and working together. You take one of those parents out of the picture and now that child is, is missing half of their DNA, half the input, and, and you're setting them up for disaster. And, and the statistics show that. Uh, I'll fight just as hard for a mother as I will for the father, but, but we happen to have the statistics on children growing up fatherless. And you know between 70 and 94% of all kids who are addicted to drugs, high school dropouts, uh, teenage pregnancies, uh, suicide, uh, violent crime, incarceration rates, 70 to 94% of those, the one common ingredient is they grew up without a dad. Now, some dads may walk away, but sadly, more than half of them are being pushed out by a system that right now thinks it's so much easier to just give one parent primary access to that child. Because you mentioned the statistic, and you have these on, on your guys' website, it states that one out of three children live in homes without bio biological fathers. 90% of these children have an increased chance of becoming homeless and are runaways. 85% of all youths are, are from homeless, well, well, we'll call it two-parent homes that are in prison. 120% um, at greater risk to become a subject of child abuse. Seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teen. This is one that kind of got, gets me all the time is 63% of these are youth suicide numbers. Uh, and, you know, today's society with COVID and everything, the suicide rates have gone up, you know, and all this. So, um, and then you guys have father absence has shown to lead to higher rates in depression, higher rates of divorce, higher rates of substance abuse. The ones that go down are educational performance, life expectancy, average income, job security, level of health. I yeah. mean, these are some very shocking statistics pertaining to our children. Yeah, you know, when you, when you think of how vulnerable children are, and here they're a very emotional part of their lives. Their parents are splitting up, and they actually have a dual trauma. The first trauma is mom and dad aren't together. They don't understand why. They don't know how to communicate their frustration. They don't even know why they're confused. They just know that something doesn't seem right. Now, compound that with the second trauma, that even though I love both parents the same, I only get to see one parent every other weekend, or in some cases, less than that. Now, unfortunately, the, a lot of times the children aren't told what's going on, or they're even worse, they're lied to and told that the one parent doesn't want to be a parent. And so now they're confused, not only are mom and dad not together, but I love my dad, but I only get to see him every other weekend. And I'm told he either doesn't love me or I wonder, does he not love me? And I wonder what's going on. And they internalize that because a seven-year-old doesn't know how to articulate that they're confused. So they just bottle it in. And it stays bottled in until around when they become high school age. And that's when the problems, that's when the drug use, that's when the behavioral problems, that's when all the other problems start to, to show the results. And the results didn't start then. The, the problem started years earlier when they ripped one of their parents out of their lives and they weren't told the real reason why it was happening. Now, when we talk about, when you said they rip a parent out of a child's life, we're talking about the family court industry, basically. Exactly, yeah. 
Now, in your opinion, is this all based on a financial gain for the courts, or is there a more underlining reason why courts are, are doing this instead of trying to keep a child with both parents in their life? Yeah, Phyllis Schlafly, who was one of my mentors that uh, actually was from St. Louis here that founded the uh, Eagle Forum and and was probably considered one of the most influential women in the history of this country politically. Uh, she passed away about five years ago, but uh, she was one of the first people that started sounding the alarm in the 80s about this Title IV-D program. And she said, this is going to create a fatherless society because states are going to start chasing money. And then they made reforms in the mid-90s, and then she really started talking about it. She wrote an article that's that's pretty famous now in 1998, where she detailed everything that was going to happen as a result of these changes in Title IV-D. And if you read that article now, you'll get goosebumps because everything she predicted that was going to happen has happened. Now, and states have gone after the money. When you're talking Title IV-D, this is a Social Security Act. Well, it's part of the Social Security Act. It's not part of the Social Security Fund. A lot of people are confused in that. And, and we hear people all the time saying, oh, they're taking money out of the Social Security Fund. Now, it has nothing to do that, but it, but it is part of the Social Security Act. And uh, the, the part that it was taken out of was, was Title IV. And Title IV was to set, originally set up with good intention. And most government programs are set up with good intention. The challenge is they have what's known as mission creep, where they just, once created, they never get smaller. They always get larger. And, you know, the Title IV-A started out originally with good intent that if a, a single parent was forced into poverty, they were going to set up some incentives to be able to help them get back on their feet again. The Title IV-D program came about in the 70s where, you know, back in the Beaver Cleaver days when I grew up, you know, my dad was a chemical engineer. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. So 12 years into the marriage, if they would have gotten a divorce... It would have been very hard for my mom to enter the workforce after being out of the workforce for 12 years and make a salary compensate to a chemical engineer. And so, you know, she may have probably probably would have ended up in on food stamps and in poverty. And they set up a program that said if this person is below the poverty level and the government is giving out food stamps and giving out other programs to this person, and someone is not helping to raise that child financially, we're going after the person who's not paying child support. Now, back then, I didn't really have a problem with it because once again, back then, traditionally, the father was the wage earner, the mother was the one that was raising kids. But we've moved past that age. Nowadays, you go to any company in America and you're gonna see just as many women working as you are men. And so many women complain that, you know, there's a glass ceiling and we can't, they want to get into the workforce. There's this big, you know, the big women's movement in the 80s of trying to get women into the workforce. Well, if you're going to do that, then you need to share some of the parenting responsibility with the father. And unfortunately, Title IV-D started realizing, you know what, it's easier to go after money if, if we can split parenting time. Because the original intent of Title IV-D was that the only people included in that were the people where a person was receiving welfare benefits. No one else was a part of Title 40. If you were a middle-class wage earner, you were not included in the Title 40 program. That was a very, very small percentage of the population. And there were several uh, changes, a slight change in 98, a slight change in 94, and a big change in 96 and 97 that lumped every single child support order in the country 
into the Title IV-D program? Well, states receive benefits on these programs based on five determining factors. And without going into all the, the nuances of each of them, it, it's basically the more money that you're able to collect, the more the states are going to receive in an incentive pool. And so if I'm a child support agent and a child support worker, and I'm given two files on my desk, one is a means-tested case, which was the one the program was designed for. This person was, you know, is not receiving child support. And as a result, they're, you know, one step above homeless. And the parent is intentionally not paying child support. The challenge is the child support order is probably only $100 or $200 a month, if even that. If you do chase the person down, first off, you're going to have a hard time because they've changed jobs five times. They've changed homes five times. And if you do change, chase them down, they have no money. But now you have this new file after 1997. And in the new file, this is a middle-class family. So their child support order is $800 a month. The father's worked the same job for the last 10 years. All you have to do is garnish his wages, threaten to take his driver's license away, and you look like a hero because now you've gotten $800 a month instead of the $100 a month. So what happened is the means-tested people are getting off scot-free and everybody knows it. The child support agents aren't even working on those people. They're trying to increase that performance bonus by going after the larger dollar amounts. And the easiest way to increase those dollar amounts is to give split time. If you give a true 50-50, there's no real need for child support. Each parent has a bedroom. You know, I'm in Levi's bedroom right now. You know, they, they say that, a lot of people will try and convince people that the reason I'm paying child support is so that Levi can have a bedroom at his mom's house. Well, you know what? The mortgage on my condo, I'm paying on this bedroom. I can't call the mortgage company and say, you know what? I don't have Levi all month long. Can you just not you know, charge me the mortgage on the percentage of his room? No, I'm paying for two bedrooms right now. So if you have a true 50-50, each parent takes care of their own expenses. There is no need for child support that case. You don't have to run something through the government. But if you can split the time and give one parent dominant time where they get 80% of the time and the other gets 20, now you have a reason to be able to run money through the government through this Title 4D program. And ironically, the Title 4D program, the money from this incentive pool bypasses the state general budget and goes directly to the courthouses making the decisions. Uh, I don't know if you saw, but we have a clip that we used to show years ago of one of my good friends, Paul Kurtman. Uh, he was the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee in the state of Missouri, which controls the budget for the state. And he started looking into it. He gave me a call back. He said, Mark, in all my years in the legislature, I have never seen a government program like this where the money bypasses the state general budget and the legislature has no say so in that money. Instead, it goes directly to the courthouses that are making the decisions on that time. Now, a judge can't increase their own salary, but they can increase the number of clerks they have. They can, you know, get a new office, office furniture, anything they want. And so what's happening is the states are going after the money. Basically, if I understand this right, it is a financial gain for the states in that aspect. Uh, I know here and where I'm at, the money is funneled into what they call a general fund. And every little group pulls away from that percentage here, percentage there. By the time it's supposed to get down to where the money's supposed to go, which is a CPS, DSS to train better, to hire more people. Because you have um, social service workers who are handling 300 cases of one person and their money ain't there. 
it's all gone to these general fund groups uh, for their own little private projects for the state. And usually it winds up in somebody's pocket. Well, it's, it, actually what ends up happening is the, the money goes straight to these departments in, as opposed to the normal money that goes to that state general fund. So what happens is states, there's two parts to the Title 40 program. One is the incentive pool. The other is states are reimbursed 66 cents on the dollar for every dollar they spend on child support enforcement. So in other words, if they need to hire three employees, two of those employees are paid by the federal government. The state only has to pay for one of those. And you know, I always give the analogy, imagine if you were gonna start a restaurant and you had budgeted $30,000 for employees, you know, say 10,000 a year. You know, Obviously we're not accounting for inflation, but just to use easy numbers, $10,000 a year for three employees. And your rich uncle comes to town and says, you know what, I wanna help you out. So for every two, three employees you hire, I'm going to pay for two of those. Well, you probably wouldn't stop with three employees. What you'd say is, hey, if my uncle's paying for, you know, more employees, I already had 30000 in my budget. Can you imagine if I had nine employees now? Because I was already going to pay 30000 How much better my service in my restaurant would be? Because my uncle's paying two-thirds of that. And that's what the government does. The government is great at spending other people's money. So if they tell the state, hey, for every two and three employees you hire, we're going to pay for two of them, the states are going to increase their spending and hire more employees. Now, to justify that, everything is going to be considered child support enforcement, and they bloat the budgets. You know, they may spend, you know, 30 minutes garnishing a wage, but yet in their reports, they're going to claim they spent eight hours figuring out where this person worked and getting the paperwork there, and they send these inflated budgets in that are, are really repulsive, the amount of, of waste in this whole program. So we need to, ultimately, we need to get rid of the whole program. I, I think that's going to be some time coming, but, but uh, we do need to make some changes in it in the short term, because that's a federal issue, and that's a lot tougher to handle. I think anybody who's watched what goes on in Washington, D.C. realizes it, it's tough to get something passed at the federal level. Uh, so in the short term, what we're working on is equal shared parenting legislation, which is the state component, because uh, states do have the right to change that aspect of it. And, and we have made some progress. Uh, you know, Kentucky passed a bill uh, 2018. Arkansas passed a great bill last year. Uh, this year, West Virginia passed a good bill. So we've, we've been making some progress. It, it never comes as quick as you want, but but we are definitely making progress. Now, as I understand it, 20 states have passed some sort of equal shared parenting bill. Uh, uh, not equal. States. No, 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 no. They've passed shared parenting bills, not equal shared parenting. Yeah, the, the only states that have equal shared parenting is Kentucky, Arkansas, and West Virginia. Those are the only three at this point. Okay. Um, they have uh, Arizona passed a bill that we refer to as equal shared parenting, but it doesn't explicitly state equal shared parenting. Uh, in the legislation, in the definitions, and there's no rebuttable presumption for it. Now, you just mentioned rebuttable presumption. That is a key aspect to all these equal shared parenting bills that I see across the nation. What exactly is this rebuttable presumption? Yeah, rebuttable presumption, the presumption term means that a child is presumed to have equal access to both parents. And I, I always tell people, always frame it from the child's perspective. Never, 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 when you're talking to a legislator, talk about your rights as a father. They could care less about your rights as a father, and you're going to lose them uh, if you mention that. So when you say father's rights, you just lost every blue vote in that state. So never mention father's rights. 
you're always talking about the child's right to both parents. But the presumption is that a child is presumed to have equal access to both parents and that both parents are presumed to be fit, willing, and able. You know, if you get a driver's license, you're presumed to be a fit, willing, and able driver. They don't take your license away unless you get a DWI. And you're allowed to go to court to have due process for that DWI. And yet, for some reason, the courts seem to have no process ripping a parent out of a child's life uh, without, you know, and presuming one chair. So the mere fact that you have a child, just like the fact that you have a driver's license, you should be presumed to be a fit, willing, and able parent. And then the rebuttable part still allows judicial discretion because there are some cases, you know, if somebody's a mass murderer, they're probably not the person that we want to take the kid home that night. So, but the threshold needs to be pretty high. You don't just remove a parent because they don't have the finances or, you know, because maybe they're not the best parent in the world. You, you can't have a different standard for unmarried parents compared to married parents. It's always amazing the way a judge has no problem claiming that, you know, this, this parent got a DWI, so they shouldn't be a parent. Well, if they were married and they got a DWI, there'd be no problem with it. So there should be a very high threshold of a standard that the judge uses for the rebuttable part of that rebuttable presumption. Okay. Now, one of the things I do want to bring up, when we talk about equal shared parenting, shared parenting, we're not talking about parental rights of mom or dad. We're talking about the children. What exactly. Yeah, the right, they, the right rights the are, I mean, they're not access, asking yeah. to be divorced from one of their parents. Exactly. Yeah, the, the child loves each and you've seen it every time you see those military reunion videos where, uh, you know, a kid's surprised at a basketball game and they turn around and their dad's in a uniform across the court and they go tearing across the court. They jump in their dad's arms. We've all every kind, even a kid whose parent is in jail in their mind, that's still their parent. And they have this inner desire to love and, and be with that parent. So to rip that parent out of a child's life, you're just asking for problems down the road. So let's get the, what are some of the things that people can do in their state to get this equal shared parenting started or passed in their state? Well, that's one of my biggest passions. And, and I, I've put a series of videos and I continue to add to them on the AFESP uh, Facebook page, it, it spelled out Americans for Equal Shared Parenting, because as I've always said, I people, I, every once in a while, people try and give me credit for getting legislation passed. And my attitude is, that's the worst thing that could happen. Because what they're telling me is if something happens to me, no legislation is going to get passed. I would feel much better if when all is said and done, and I kicked a bucket, and people are eating potato salad at my funeral, if instead of saying Mark got legislation passed, I'd feel proud as the Dickens for people to say, you know what? I helped get legislation passed in South Carolina because of something I learned from Mark. I helped get this passed because it's people in different states. So for the person listening to this that says, you know what? I don't have a legislative background. In my mind, you're who we want. A legislator doesn't wanna hear from a person who goes to the Capitol every week. That's considered a lobbyist. And legislators do not like lobbyists. They like constituents from their district. So. For the people hearing this that say, I don't have any background, I'm telling you, you can do just as much as I can for this movement. Call your state, your state rep and call your state senator and say, I'm a constituent of yours and I've got a concern. And I, I don't care what district you're in, I don't care if they're Republican or Democrat, your state rep and your state senator want to hear from you. The magic words are, 
I'm a constituent of yours and I've got an issue I'd like your help with. That's what you start with. Now, once you call that person, you can't get mad at them. One of the biggest challenges that I, I think we've made a big change in the direction of the ship over the last six years. In the past, people were angry and I understand the anger. Trust me, I've, I've been there. Uh, I've dealt with it. But the challenge is when you call a legislator and you start yelling at them, you know, imagine how you feel when somebody yells at you. you know, if somebody starts yelling at me, my first conversation with them, my attitude is, I don't want to be around that person. I'm going to avoid them every chance I get. So the key is to sort of come around the table to their side and say, hey, give them an out. Hey, you may not be aware of this, but let me educate you on how this issue is affecting me. And a lot of times, first I ask them what they know. Hey, what do you know about the shared parenting issue? Do you know anybody that was affected by divorce? Do you know anybody who lost access to their kids as a result of a separation? And a lot of times I get them talking and you'd be surprised how many of them will say, I never thought it was an issue, but now that you mention it, I got this guy that goes to my church that hasn't seen his kids in over a month. So if I can, what I want to do, I love asking questions because now they're invested. I don't like talking at a legislator because it's just bouncing off. I want to get them involved and invested in the conversation by asking questions that make them think. And I, especially if they have kids, I want to ask them in a very polite way, but just say, you know, could you imagine, Mr. Senator, what it would feel like if tomorrow your wife left you and you couldn't see your kids for the next six months? How would you be able to do your job every day? And I want them thinking and, and you got to get them emotionally involved. And I said, it's a it's a balancing act because you don't want to attack them. You don't want to sound threatening, but you want to get them putting themselves in your shoes and saying, oh, my gosh, I I never thought of that. I, I wouldn't be able to live without my kids. That's what I want. So I always want to try. And so the other key is I always try to do my research. I'm always checking their Facebook pages before I meet with somebody. I'm doing research on their background. I want to know what their kids are involved in. Are they, their kids in karate? Do their kids play basketball? If so, that's what I'm going to bring up. Hey, you know, Mr. Senator, could you imagine what it would be like if you showed up to your son's school and the principal came out and said, sorry, you're not allowed to attend the basketball game? How would you feel knowing that you had to sit in the parking lot and you missed your son's first basketball game? That happens to a lot of your constituents. And that's the other key. I start out by telling them a, a personal story, but I don't spend more than about 60 seconds on my own story because then I come across like you're bitter. And so about a 60 second recap of your story, but the crucial words you need to say are, but let me tell you what, Mr. Senator, I promise you this, I'm not the only one in your district. Tonight, there's a hundred other fathers going through exactly that in your district. Because any legislator wants to be the hero to their, their people. And when they hear that, you know, there's a lot of people being affected now all of a sudden, but that's why we need so many people. And in so many states of use, as you've seen, that we get so many people that are keyboard warriors and yeah, we're gonna make a change. And yeah, I'm gonna change the laws. And I've never seen. 99% of those people have never stepped foot in the Capitol, have never called their legislator one single time. What we need is people go showing up at the Capitol, calling their legislators. If we had 100 people on a regular basis in a polite, professional manner, calling their legislators on a you know, regular basis, it'd be a done deal in any state across the country. But unfortunately, we don't. We had a shared parenting day this year at, at the Missouri Capitol. Now, in Missouri, we're very fortunate. We have Linda Reutzel with NPO, great, great leader. We have Kenneth um, 
Rosa from TFRM, another great leader. We have myself, eh, so-so. We got Jeremy Roberts. We got Jeff Miller. Uh, we've got some power leaders across the country. And we had a shared parenting day at the Capitol this year. And would you believe five people showed up and that was it. And that was after two months worth of promotion. Five people from the entire state of Missouri, which I consider us not as big as Texas. I think te hands down, Texas has the most leaders in the country. But but I think Missouri's pretty up there and, and pretty pathetic to realize only five people from the whole. So if I'm a legislator and there's a Second Amendment issue and there's 300 people in my rotunda and there's a pro-life issue and there's another 300 people in my rotunda and there's shared parenting and there's the same five people I've seen five times this year already. My attitude is, OK, apparently that's not an issue that affects a lot of constituents. So I'm not going to waste my time with it. Well, we got about just under three minutes left on the show. So let me ask you this. How can people reach out to you and Americans for Equal Shared Parenting if they need help? Yeah, thanks for asking. And once again, not that we're better than any other group. There's some great groups out there. My focus is to educate and empower people who want to get involved. The easiest way is we've got a very active Facebook page. It's Americans for Equal Shared Parenting, all spelled out. So Americans for Equal Shared Parenting. We also have a, a, a website, the abbreviation, AFESP.com. That's AFESP.com. And then my email is mludwig at AFESP.com. So M-L-U-D-W-I-G at AFESP.com. But if, if I can help anybody at all in your state, I would absolutely love to do it. Okay. So let me, let me put just these last couple of questions because we're just under two minutes here. Um, equal share parenting. Is it a gender issue? Uh, it isn't as much anymore. It used to be considered a men's issue, but uh, I would say more than half the people involved now are females who grew up without a dad that found out the truth after they got out of high school, or stepmoms who have watched what their husband goes through trying to get access to kids from a previous marriage, or grandmothers. So it affects everyone. Uh, unfortunately, 83% of the non-custodial parents are men, though. So 83% of the cases, the mother will become the primary custodian. Okay. Now, the second question, and I, we asked this about every, just about everybody, is keeping a child from one parent without just cause, should this all be considered child abuse? Absolutely. There is nothing more important in a child's life than access to their mother and their father both. And absolutely, 100%, if someone withholds a child because if someone kidnaps a child, that's kidnapping. That person goes to jail. If one parent withholds visitation from that child of their parent, that's basically kidnapping, whether it's for a weekend. In my case, I went 204 days one time, and I'll tell you what, that was a kidnapping. That person should have gone to jail for that. Well, Mark, it was a pleasure talking to you again, and hopefully we'll have more interviews like this and everything. You know, hopefully this will get cleared up for children all across the world and here in the U.S. and everything. Well, thanks again for everything you do. I, I sure appreciate you and all the other. We've got some great leaders in this community across the country. So as we just heard my interview with uh, Mark Ludwig from the Americans for Equal Shared Parenting. Now, Dr. Roseman, here, here's one of the things I brought up uh, in doing the interview. And I love that Mark's reply to it was that parental alienation is not a gender issue. It's not a race issue. It's not a religious issue. It is a global issue for parents and the legal system, basically as a psychologist in your department. How does that play in for what Mark's comments were about that particular aspect? Well, uh, I'll, I'll base it on, on the work uh, that I've uh, been doing with families over, uh, over the years. And 
some 20 years ago, uh, it appeared to be much more a gender issue. It appeared that uh, uh, fathers were uh, more often the victim because the judges were allocating uh, sole custody, not shared parenting. And, and so their decisions for sole custody were generally towards uh, providing it to the mother. But over the years, uh, as um, more and more cases of conflict between parents uh, became uh, far more uh, prevalent and visible and characterizing the, you know, the nature of divorce through highly conflicted personalities, as uh, Judge Philip Marcus would prefer to say, uh, Judge Philip Marcus from Israel. The, the nature of the conflict in the last 10, 15 years has moved towards one of more even distribution between the victimization of mothers as well as victimization of fathers. And so Mark is really uh, correct in, in saying that uh, it's not a gender issue today because it is not. These statistics are uh, really more of the, the if you if you'll forgive me by saying the 50-50, it's approximately half of half of the parents so uh, at loss of access to their children are mothers and the other half access uh, 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 with loss to access to their children uh, are, are are fathers or the nature of the litigation is nearly equally brought by moms against custodial dads as by dads against custodial moms. So it, it really has, has found itself to be globally, in fact, one that is not a gender issue, uh, but one that is really uh, more evenly distributed. And, it, and it, uh, it may very well be that the courts are, have become far more educated to the, the aspects of family dynamics than one may have thought 20 plus years ago. Uh, when the philosophies were were very different, if you, if you look at litigation, in fact, at the uh, the best interest perspective, the best interest perspective were really based on social norms of the time. And 100, 150 years ago, the norm was that the mothers had the opportunities and should have the opportunities for raising their children until they were weaned, and then they can be given to their fathers, who were farmers who needed help on the land. Uh, who were then able to uh, better care and train and educate their kids to land ownership or... Well, that was the thing I think Mark brought up, and I, I love that aspect, is that the what we used to call the nuclear family, the mom, dad, two kids, and, and a dog, doesn't exist anymore into the, in modern society. That has gone the way of the dodo, so to speak. Now we have both parents working. We have the children and after-school programs and stuff like this. So the classic family, leave it the beaver episodes doesn't come to mind anymore. You know, uh, when I was growing up during the 80s, we had the latchkey program for parent for kids whose parents were working. That's right. Um, so the legal system, I think, I think this was part of what Mark was trying to bring up is the legal system didn't change with this mentality and social change. No, no, it did not. And, and in fact, um, it, 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 has, it has lagged behind and it moved from one extreme to the other because there was guilt within the system when they looked at 
you know, providing fathers 150 years ago or so uh, with, with access to their children when the kids were weaned, and then changing it to that of the uh, more of the, uh, uh, you know, considering best interest really to be uh, with the, uh, the most nurturing, which, you know, they, they assume to be, uh, to be mom, then, then it brought out over the last 20 years where there's been more, e more equality in the marketplace, more women that are working, more, more, more sharing of, 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 of uh, raising children. Uh, the, the, the social dynamics have changed an awful lot, and it's the courts that have not kept up with those changes. So that, I think, really deserves more examination because we're very quick to blame and, and there's a lot of blame that needs to, to be assigned. But at the same time, we have to look at blame is really based on philosophical differences. What do those philosophical difference count, differences uh, stem from? And, and they really come from what have been social norms. But the norms have changed now. So Mark is absolutely right in bringing out that, you know, it is, it is no longer a, a gender issue. I like the fact that later on in the interview with Mark, he brings up Title 4D, which is the Social Security Act that people involved in shared parenting, equal shared parenting, parental alienation, all talk about. But I like the fact that he he defined it that it's not from the Social Security Fund, but it's a Social Security Act. And it's basically the state profiting from families being destroyed. I mean, that, that is an issue that a lot of people are very careful with touching, but Mark speaks with it openly, you know. Right. When you, when you look at it from that aspect is that the state's getting $2 or $3 for every dollar that these families have to put out, that's a lot of money for the state. You know, and depending on how your particular state works, who's getting that money? Yeah. Uh, it's not going to the families. It's not going to help the families out there any, anything. It's going in somebody's pocket, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. As he said, uh, there are some states which reward the courts and the courts, you know, have inflated budgets and then they... And they uh, they spend the money on uh, additional labor and uh, maybe uh, improvements in their facilities, but um, I think if we take the monetization out of solving conflict and uh, and move the remedy in, into that of uh, of of understanding and education and agreement and support, then then we'll have a healthy society. Look. Every, every decision that a court makes with respect to child custody, uh, research shows has a, has a very long-term effect and impact on that family. Those decisions impact the family up to 150 years, and that's six generations. So when there is a commitment to understanding the importance of decision-making, the, the significance of decision-making, and the need to improve, therefore, decision making, then we will have a much healthier uh, approach in maintaining our, our society. So it, it's, it's not a gender issue, but sadly, it still remains a court issue. I mean, th that's the thing is, I've spoken and interviewed Mark several times at, for different outlets, but I always love the fact that he always focuses on the children in, in his conversations. You know, I had the pleasure of meeting him when he was down here in South Carolina, and we spoke off uh, side a little bit, and he never varied that this is the focus has to be on the children in every aspect. When you go to your legislators and you start talking about family court, don't focus on the parents. You know, we're adults. We can handle just about anything that's thrown at us. But the focus has to maintain on the children that don't have the tools to deal with 
these issues. They don't know what's going on. They don't know, you know, but they have no voice in the courts as well. You know, they have a guardian at litem that is supposed to, they work for the courts allegedly, and they're supposed to be the voices. Now, I remember growing up, you know, I always refer to the 80s. I remember that when families got divorced, the kids always had an attorney appointed usually to represent them. That's right. Now we don't. Now we have people with no training going out here making decisions and telling the court, well, I think they need to do this and this and this. And, and what, what's happening is that you've, you've got uh, courts that are, are, are looking to streamline the process. And they streamline by going with one modality, changing to another modality. And, um, you know, uh, so, you know, we have, we have to consider that the courts, you know, are, are backed up with, with cases. And a lot of the cases are those that are returning to the court. But, uh, but the resolution, the, the, the process of, 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 of child custody, you know, is a, uh, you know, it, it is a problem. It can be very much cookie cutter, whatever the standards may be. But when it comes to a family, there's no standard. You know, there might be roles that appear to be standard, but the dynamics within the families, each family, is extremely different because exactly. of their own values, you know, their own expectations, their own personalities, their own emotional, you know, status. They have uh, children who have different experiences. They have different traumas. Many people carry traumas from their own childhood, bring them into the, uh, you know, in, into their family situation. And so, and so for the, it's unfair it's unfair, I will say, for the courts to make such streamlined approaches to dealing with families, and it's unfair to the courts. And the courts, at some point, need to understand how unfair it is to them as well as to the to the families that are coming uh, for you know for assistance. The court is really to assist; it's not to punish. And, and, and so there's a lot of philosophical changes that, that I think need to be made, and uh, they can be. But that's the funny thing, because as you just said, the courts are there to assist and not punish. But when you hear about family court cases throughout the world, throughout the U.S., it sounds like they're actually just there to punish the parent that didn't get custody. You know, we're going to fine you. You're going to go to jail if you don't do this and that. Uh, how does that benefit the children anyway? You know, you're, you're removing one parent from that child's life for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, whatever the court decides. You're basically punishing that child, in my opinion. So, you know, yes, they're supposed to be there to assist by theory, but by practice, it seems more like they're punishing. And it's not the parents are punishing, it's the children. I mean, I may be wrong in that aspect. That may be my own thoughts, but... That is my thought on it. You know? Well, these the, these are the proverbial standard bearers. The children are, but they're the unseen standard bearers because, uh, you know, the court process and the, the legal procedures are really focused more on the parents, not on the kids. Um, it, you know, and uh, you know, we were talking earlier, and I, you and I, and I, you know, it's it, it, it's it's clear that. In the last, you know, 12, 15 years, it's been more of a consciousness within many court circuits nationally and internationally. Internationally, there, there, there are some countries that are more receptive to understanding high conflict and some that are less receptive and continuing to uh, examine through commission 
uh, the nature of divorce and related high conflict outcomes as alienated, alienated children. But the, uh, uh, the process is, uh, is sadly, it's, it's always slow for the person who and the family who becomes victimized by a, uh, uh, by a court, meaning the attorneys that might be involved or representing or opposing sides or by the, uh, the lack of knowledge by a judge or by mediators who themselves are attorneys. Look, I'm a mediator myself. I was trained in Florida because at the time, Connecticut did not provide uh, any training for mediation. Mediation was not a requirement for families going through child custody issues. And of course, mediation uh, has, has great value if, you know, if there are uh, procedures and guidelines that, you know, enhance, you know, its, its, its value you know, uh, appropriately. That's a, that's another subject, of course, to discuss at length. But uh, there are changes that still have to be made because there are many different levels of that, you know, beginning with the interactions between the, the parents themselves and all that each of the parents represent uh, philosophically and emotionally and psychologically. Yeah, you know, one, one of the things that in my research and everything, and, you know, I, I always constantly do research and watch interviews from other journalists and stuff. And... One of the things I noticed is because I grew up in Europe being an army brat, uh, places we used to consider third world countries seem to have a better understanding of keeping the children at the forefront, at the focal point, than we do ourselves here in the United States. You know, uh, Switzerland, parents, when they divorce, it's automatic, 50-50. When the mom gets pregnant, the dad gets maternity leave just as much. So they understand that it requires both individuals for the child. Where here, we look at it from a monetary single individual standpoint. And I, I, you know, when I first became a dad, my focus shifted so quickly that I knew instantaneously that my focus had to be on my son. I had to do everything that was in my power to take care of that child and raise that child properly. But that doesn't seem to be the deal with the judicial aspect of it. They're more concentrated on financial. This is one of the things Mark kept bringing up was that the monetary aspects of family court. Uh, you know, Mark's background is all politics. You know, he, he's got some great names and a great resume in politics, but he always brings up the monetary aspect that these states are making from these children and these families. Uh, there's no way of getting around it, really. You know, what price tag do you put on a child's future? Here in South Carolina, oh, these family court judges earn $178,000 a year. At what price do these children pay, though? You know, if... Two people are amicable and are able to sit down and talk. Wouldn't that be better for the child? Of course, of course. And I think each each country, as as you've uh, ma- uh, you know made a comparison, and and certainly each state, you know, has uh, you know a different ethic, uh, a different philosophy. And, and the states, of course, you know, is is uh, you know it's capitalist country. It's built on uh, self self sustaining. So, uh, it's built on self-preservation and, you know, uh, self-actualization. And to survive, you either have to grow your own, build your own, make your own, or earn your own. And uh, in other countries, you know, they, they, they value life a little differently. And, uh, and so I think there are, um, there, are, there are social differences that, that affect the way that, you know, uh, any any judiciary uh, may find itself serving. 
Um, and, and so there are philosophies that are really, you know, impacted by, you know, how individuals see the present and the future and their own society and, and things that they might even not be conscious of, but that certainly have absorbed and, and act out. So I think that, you know, if we, if we can introduce more humanity into our, uh, uh, in our court system, as we do, by the way, <clears throat> pardon me, in juvenile court uh, or dependency courts, depends on, on the state uh, and, and how they refer them. But when you're looking at those courts, which specifically serve to reunify children with parents who may have been drug addicted or may have had you know, mental health issues or, or, or may have lacked the skills to, to parent uh, adequately and appropriately, uh, the courts still want to reunify those children with those parents. And in family court, it's, uh, it's a slugfest. And, and I think that if we can help all involved in, in those decisions from the, uh, uh, from the uh, judicial level, from the, from the judge uh, level of judgment to the uh, level of the uh, representation and counsel, the counselor level, uh, I, I think things will be a lot easier in there. There have been some changes. I mean, look, we've got 38 states now that have shared parenting. Uh, and uh, 20 years ago, there were none, you know, or there was by default. Uh, you've got uh, today maybe a dozen states which uh, require mediation. You have a few that do it by default. And I think that if you look at uh, the role that uh, these are two important remedies, that of you know, decision-making by oneself or, or, or by by the parents themselves through a mediation process that is so defined as supporting and allowing the parents to, to, to craft decisions for and by themselves. Uh, and if you have a, uh, a judiciary and a, a legal process that will permit not the, um, you know, the punitive measures uh, of, uh, of finding solutions for custody, and, uh, but look at how they can be supportive of shared parenting and, and articulate you know, that that is the only outcome for a child, whether parents choose to live together or not. Yeah, you know, the other thing Mark brought up was the fact that we have, throughout the United States, we have thousands of shared parenting organizations, but none of them are working together within a state. You know, like uh, Texas has like 30 of them. And they're all doing their own little thing. And like me and Mark spoke off camera, is that if they all came together and unified one focal point, they may get it changed real quick. You know, Texas is a state that you can have jury trials in family court, which is unheard of in any other state. Right. Because Texas actually lists it as a constitutional protection, a, a constitutional right. Which, you know, if these organizations in each state, and this is one of the things Mark said, you know, yeah. each state needs to get their thing together, and then federally something might change. But if these organizations are, are within each state, whether it be California, New York, you know, Florida, uh, come together and sit down and say, hey, we're going to do this this way. We're going to make sure our children have their voices heard. Things might change a little quicker. But when you got, you know, the old saying, too many chefs in the kitchen, the, the soup's not going to turn out right. And, and, you know, the other thing was, and let me get your, because, you know, I asked this of all the guests we have on the show is, do they consider parental alienation child abuse? And every person we've ever interviewed has stated yes. So why are the courts still not viewing this as parental alienation? 
a lot of states have uh, clauses in their uh, children's laws pertaining to mental abuse. And is this not a form of mental abuse that is issued by the states themselves? And I, I think we have to survey the, uh, the states to, to find out what their objections are. If you look at the webinars offered by the uh, AFCC, the Association for Family and Conciliation Courts, if you look at even local bar associations, uh, which are you know, the professional organizations uh, in each state for, you know, for attorneys. Uh, you'll find that uh, the arguments center around the vocabulary. You know, it's uh, uh, does, parental, does parental alienation exist uh, or does it not exist? Is it a syndrome? Is it not a syndrome? Uh, who's the cause? Isn't it the child's reactions? And, uh, and then if you bring in a... Uh, a therapist to uh, uh, to evaluate uh, the children. <clears throat> what do they know about uh, alienation? What do they know about the bonds of affection between a child and a parent that have been disrupted? And how do you find out if it's not estrangement, but it's actual uh, vilification of the other parent by by the um, primary parent, let's say, or the uh, at home parent, which is what Florida refers to the custodial. The, uh, I, I think it's the courts themselves that get caught up in semantics and terminology and simply should say, hey, is the child being harmed? What is the harm? How do we stop it? Then you don't get into, is it alienation? You know, is it uh, narcissistic behavior? Who the hell cares how you label it? What is important is it needs to be stopped. It needs to be corrected. And there needs to be education of who is doing it, they need to be helped. Anybody that, look, if anyone, you know, uh, commits a crime, uh, it might be that they played an insanity defense. Uh, it might be that uh, they'll be uh, forgiven certain maximum uh, punishments if they have uh, therapeutic uh, assistance. Uh, the point is, anybody that acts inappropriately should be, number one, stopped, and number two, should be educated. We need to find out why do they think this way? Why do they act that way? And how can they be corrected? And, and so the, the courts are really uh, at fault for taking too much time in arguing the semantics and the labeling of what is and not uh, carefully asking what is happening here? Is it natural? Did it occur before the separation? Is it post-divorce? Why is the kid acting this way? And, and, and do an actual forensic. I wanna give you one quick example. One of our editorial uh, board members, Dr. A. Bornklein from Toronto, uh, from Quebec, pardon me. He, he told me uh, several years ago that when he meets with a child who is a product of a, a high conflict uh, divorce or where there appears to be some alienation, at least that is, you know, introduced as, as a possibility by one parent. He'll ask the kid when the kid comes in, he'll say, you know, they sit down and he, he says, tell me what's on your mind. What are you thinking? What were you told to say? What were you told to share with me? And then the kid will tell them exactly what they were told. My father's no good. My mother's no good. Uh, they do this. They do that. They don't do this. They don't do that. And then Abe will pause sit back and say, okay, great. Now tell me, how you doing? How's everything? And then he gets into a more candid conversation about the 
have, you know, uh, the kid's status of mind. In other words, the kid didn't betray his custodial parent. He did exactly what they wanted him to. So he was um, unburdened of that responsibility. And now he can be himself. And, uh, and this is, if you had therapists, evaluating therapists who knew, as a, you as a journalist would know, every time you, you ask the question, why, and you get an answer, then you ask it again to get another why, and you ask it again to get another why. Well, the therapists don't do this. Forensics don't do that. You know, they take face value. They don't go deep enough. And you must, you must understand what is in this child's heart of hearts. You know, you, you, you have to find ways of diffusing the child and you have to find ways of supporting the child. And then you can build the trust and then you can get really honest appraisals. But certainly you have to, you ask well, why. <laughs> you know, as usual, Dr. Roseman, you, you hit it right on there. Who cares what you label it? Label it, <laughs> label it sprinkles of rainbows. I don't care. Stop it, fix it for the child's sake. That, that's the exactly. main point of all these organizations, all these uh, reform requests is stop what's going on, fix it for the children. You know, you know that's the focal point of any aspect of any of these groups. Uh, you know, I love the fact that you put it out there so plainly. It's just stop it. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> don't don't figure out why. You know, just stop it, and then figure out why it is going on. Uh, you know, a lot of people start talking about uh, well, the the alienating parent needs to give up their right. No, that's not the way it works. That's not that's not ideal for the child either. You need to fix the issue of why they're doing it. It could have yeah. been something in their childhood. Correct. You know, as we discussed several times, as you yourself say, that this carries with a child for six generations. So it could have been back that far and just carried on over. But, you know, Mark, I, I love the fact that we have individuals like Mark Ludwig who offer themselves out there to these organizations. He's traveled several states to help them change their legislation. He's not an individual who takes it upon himself to, you know, carry the flame and and, and say, I'm going to do this. He, he wants other people to empower themselves. You know, pretty much like what we try to do with Contemporary Family Magazine and now with CF Digital, our podcast now, is we want to get the information out there. We want to be able to inform and empower people to make those changes in their states for their children, you know, uh, even make changes for themselves in their lives. But that's pretty much what we have for this episode. I hope people enjoy our episodes, uh, you know, get the information out of them and use them the best way you figure you can use them. Uh, Dr. Roseman, do you have anything you want to end the episode with? Oh, thank you. I, I want to uh, thank uh, all our listeners, encourage you. If you've found this of value, please share, let people know uh, what, what is of value to you. Um, and also, uh, please be in touch with us as to what, what else you may like for us <clears throat> to bring forward. I'm so grateful to you, Clint, for the important uh, uh, questions that, that you ask and, uh, and making this uh, such a, a meaningful and global uh, experience. Thank you. Well, folks, that's pretty much what we have for this episode. Just join us next week for another interview or a discussion. We still haven't decided that one. Uh, but just join us and listen. 
and start making that change for children's sake throughout the U.S., throughout the world, because they're the ones who are going to be taking care of us at some point. CF Digital is rooted in the contemporary family magazine mission to preserve family ties, whether parents are estranged, children are alienated, or otherwise impacted by their societal trauma. In each episode of CF Digital, we deliver a candid, down-to-earth, and supportive interviewing style that is both educational and enjoyable. In this way, you will more easily learn the history and vital skills necessary for you to become more effective practitioners, child advocates, and parents.